This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Okay, welcome back everybody uh, to this, our fourth and final session of the workshop. I have to say, I already feel a little bereaved at the thought of this being over. Um, it's just been, the discussions have been um, so rich and I feel like we're just, we're just getting started. Um, but I know this is, has uh, certainly affirmed for us all just the um, wealth of energy and enthusiasm and uh, the importance of this discussion. So. Um, so it falls to me to share this last, our, our last session, our cross-cutting panel session. Um, we did, as you can imagine, um, really, really struggle to, to um, devise a workshop that was as inclusive as we could uh, make it within the limits of the online delivery and um, the limits of four panels. Um, so for this last session, we really, we looked at civil society activity, we looked at committee activity, um, we looked at what was coming up around the, under the optional protocol, and I've selected just a, a very small subset of issues um, where we do see um, activity and, and certainly potential um, around CEDAW and SOGI. Um, and our um, panelists uh, are very, very kindly um, going to speak to those issues, um, incredibly well placed also uh, to speak to those issues. So um, I just to note before I get into the, the, the cross-cutting panelists, uh, the format for this is we'll have three, we'll have three contributions from our uh, speakers. Uh, we'll then move into a Q&A. Um, and then at 4.45, uh, you, our, our time here, the last, the last 15 minutes, we're going to move over to um, hear some concluding uh, thoughts and comments from uh, Marion Bethel from the CEDAW committee, who's very kindly um, agreed to, to round out our discussions today and, and indeed has been an avid supporter of our uh, workshop since she became aware of it. Um, so with that, I will uh, commence the introductions. Uh, we're very fortunate today to, to be joined by um, uh, friends at uh, Columbia Diversa. Lucia Baca is going to speak to work that they've been doing around um, conflict and questions of CEDAW and SOGI. Um, and we're delighted to have you. And thank you for joining us, um, Lucia. Um, after that, we'll move to uh, Niels Eric Hansen, who's a lawyer who's been very involved in bringing um, asylum related communications uh, to the CEDAW committee under the optional protocol. Um, and then we'll hear from uh, Ksenia Kirichenko from Ilga World, and she's going to be talking about some of her work, um, including uh, hate speech issues. Um, so, uh, Lucia, I will invite you to kick us off. Thank you so much for um, taking the time, and it's, it's lovely to be able to include you um, from Colombia, and uh, I'm going to spotlight you there. Um, hi. Hi, Catherine. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me and thank you to everyone who's joining us. Um, like Catherine said, my name is Lucia and I work at Colombia Diversa, which is a leading LGBT rights organization based in, in Colombia. Um, and sort of before I begin, I do want to acknowledge that we're currently experiencing sort of a brutal, currently experiencing a brutal crackdown in Colombia, um, you know, on, on protests all across the country, especially in the city of Cali, and that this is sort of once again clear evidence of the government's failure to address uh, the root causes of social conflicts and to respond to social discontent with anything other than the use of force. Um, so today, you know, that being said, I, I want to focus on three points, uh, one being sort of the conflict sort of particular and persisting impact on lesbian, bisexual and trans women and girls, 
um, two, uh, sort of the major CDAO compliance concerns in relation to these rights, and then three, sort of the CDAO committee's role as an opportunity to vindicate uh, and uphold these rights. Uh, so, so speaking sort of to the first point, uh, the committee has already recognized, right, in, in GR 30, that women's experiences during wartime are not homogenous. Um, and, and though LBT women face many of the same risks as, as heterosexual and cisgender women, they also confront unique challenges because of their sexual orientations and, and gender identities. Um, and sort of in the, in the Clement conflict, for example, LBT women have been subject to have been subjected to a pernicious cycle of violence, right? That often begins uh, sort of in their, in their homes, in their schools, in their communities, which ends up severing community and family ties and sort of pushing them out into the streets at young ages. Uh, this is especially true for trans women who sort of in the absence of or with diminished access to formal employment and formal, formal education and formal employment um, and often end up being pushed into the informal sector. Um, especially beauty work and sex work where they don't have labor protections, have precarious labor conditions, and are of course sort of subject to exploitation. The confluence uh, of these sort of structural inequalities, uh, which strip LBT women of their protective environments, at, like I said, at young ages, um, and their visibility as sort of gender transgressors, right, of, of transgressors of, of the gender prevailing gender norms, um, end up exposing LBT women, especially masculine presenting lesbian women and transgender women um, to a greater risk of armed group violence. Um, in fact, what we found and, and other organizations and even the, the state, right, um, the National Center for Historical Memory has found is that armed groups have actively targeted LBT women throughout the conflict because of their sexual orientations and gender identities. Um, and this of course is sort of a form of gender-based violence. Um, it's, it's a form of gender-based violence that takes on many forms. Uh, for example, uh, some of the more recurring cases that we've seen is harassment of trans women at military checkpoints, um, especially of trans women that still have uh, male, um, like male documents, right, that haven't had the opportunity or maybe have not wanted to uh, sort of change um, their, the gender component and their names in their, in their identification. Um, and also, for example, cases of corrective rape. Uh, so-called corrective rape, especially against lesbian women, um, cases of forced labor, threats, right? It's, it's, a, it's a whole series of violations that are um, end up being connected sort of by the discriminatory intent of the perpetrators. Um, and even though people often, uh, you know, scholars, practitioners in, in the legal field believe that these attacks are isolated or, or random, they're very far from that, you know, they're sort of sustained practices rooted in, in entrenched cultural prejudices, um, and that actually sort of further armed groups uh, war objectives, right? Uh, sort of targeting LBT women helps armed groups enforce gender norms, uh, gain economic advantages, um, dominate, um, instill fear, and even curry favor sort of with local communities. Um, and that's sort of a crucial point that I want to make is that um, you know, not only this violence doesn't occur in a vacuum, right, just as most gender forms of gender based as all forms of gender based violence. Um, so not only is it entrenched in these sort of pre existing cultural prejudices, but um, it enjoys sort of a broad uh, social legitimacy generally and um, is even instigated at times by civilians right sort of take advantage of the presence of armed groups to um, to punish or or try to correct um, sort of the gender deviance of these women. Um, and in many cases, these forms of violence end up sort of in the forced displacement and in the sort of disintegration of, of community groups. 
Um, so this brings me to, to my second point, which is sort of some, some major CDAO compliance concerns. The first being sort of the Colombian states, you know, the, the state's lack of due diligence in preventing, investigating, prosecuting, and redressing SOGI-based violence in the conflict. Uh, historically, there has been sort of a lack of, a marked lack of political will to understand um, and address the specific risks and needs that LBT women face, and even less political will to hold perpetrators accountable. Um, there are no consolidated official statistics on SOGI-based violence, for example, and no official statistics at all on SOGI-based violence in conflict. Um, the overwhelming majority of LBT survivors have never seen a courtroom, uh, let alone any form of justice. Um, and, and even now, where you know, we're sort of in the throes of this political transition, that's supposed to be sort of this great opening, this great opportunity for, for change, we're still facing a grave risk of impunity in the special jurisdiction for peace, uh, the tribunal created to judge the crimes that occurred uh, during the conflict um, with the FARC, um, and because they have failed to implement uh, sort of gender-sensitive measures and practices to, uh, to address and investigate uh, gender-based crimes. Um, and, in, and of course, barriers to accessing things like medical treatment or, or reparations are also uh, quite formidable, so it, they remain elusive for, for most survivors. Uh, none of the survivors we've worked in, for example, have, um, have been able to like access justice or uh, very few have been able to access medical treatments. Um, I think none actually have been able to access reparations uh, or nothing more than, for example, sort of like in, in being um, a, a monetary uh, a reparation, right? That's sort of where it stops and, and a few of them um, have been able to access that. Um, the second sort of compliance concern I, I want to flag is sort of the government's flagrant violation of the 2016 peace agreement, um, and especially the gender perspective. So we can see this on, on two levels uh, sort of that are relevant for CDAO. Uh, one is that even though the peace agreement has sort of espouses this comprehensive approach to security that tackles the root causes of conflict, um, since coming into office, uh, the current administration has pursued a sort of hardline militarized security strategy that ends up fueling the violence, right? Like massacres have gone up, attacks against human rights activists have gone up. Um, and, and this obviously ends up taking, again, a disproportionate toll on LBT women. It affects their participation in peace building and transitional justice institutions. Um, so that's on one level. And at the same time, um, this sort of buffet style approach, right? We implement what is convenient to our interests uh, to the peace agreement has ended up leading, has led to sort of a, a truncated piecemeal and exclusionary implementation of the gender perspective. It's as if LBT women were not actually women, right? They're, they're either neglected or actively erased uh, from the gender perspective. They're not counted, right? When the government reports on the implementation of the gender perspective, it almost never reports on the participation of LBT women. Um, and it doesn't even collect that information in many cases. And when we ask about that, it ends up telling us that it's not relevant uh, or that there is no way to collect that information. And even says, oh no, that's private. So, you know, we, we really can't ask about that or we don't know how to ask about that. So we just leave it that way. Um, and, you know, this is in part because of its ties to these sort of anti-gender fundamentalist groups, which sort of shows um, it's, it's lack of political will to, to hold on and, and defend political gains of LBT women against rollbacks. Um, and sort of a final point to make there is that Colombia still does not have a national action plan on women, peace and security, which could help um, sort of address some of the issues of these issues. The government actually um, considered 
uh, sort of developing one last year, but they basically sort of, um, they, they told the women's movement like a month in advance, right? They wanted to release it for the 20th anniversary of the WPS uh, resolute of, th of UNSCR 1325, which meant that it really just wanted the rubber stamp of civil society, not any real input. Um, so uh, most of the women's movement said no, um, or you know, a solid contingent said no, that they were not going to participate and it did not end up coming out. Uh, so in the face of these challenges, um, the, the CDAO, you know, the CDAO committee still holds sort of an, an untapped, uh, but truly tremendous potential uh, to vindicate LBT, the, the rights of LBT women and girls in conflict and, and post-conflict settings. Uh, to date, the committee has made sort of notable progress on one, recognizing SOGI as grounds of, of discrimination, Two, sort of explaining its applicability to conflict and post-conflict settings and, and conflict being broadly defined, which is sort of a major, a major point, um, and also promoting the implementation of, of the WPS agenda. Um, but what we need now is sort of to put those pieces together. Uh, GR30, for example, only mentioned sexual minorities in passing. Um, and in the last, in its final observations to the last, uh, to Columbia's last periodic report in 2019, it sort of, it issues recommendations on conflict and women in conflict, and it issues recommendations on LGBT rights issues, but it doesn't really put them together, right? There, there's no bridge there. It's like they run sort of in parallel. Um, and so, you know, what, what we need now, the opportunity that's, that's before us is sort of to deepen that intersectional analysis, really ask what, you know, what those differential, you know, specific needs and, and risks are uh, for LBT women and girls in conflict and post-conflict situations and leverage its monitoring mechanisms to advance their rights, both in relation to the convention and in relation to the WPS agenda, where there's been significantly less political room uh, to push for, for LBT inclusion. Um, and sort of some actions that it could consider, for example, are uh, sort of including questions in, in about uh, the rights of LBT women and girls in its list of issues and questions to ask states, um, including in relation to WPS commitments and to donor countries, right? How are donor countries prioritizing LBT women and girls as well? Um, also to make sort of concrete recommendations and its concluding observations, once again, also in relation to donor countries, not just in countries in, in conflict and post-conflict situations and uh, potentially even issuing a general recommendation on the rights of LBT, uh, on women and girls in general that also addresses their rights in conflict and post-conflict settings. Uh, so it really is sort of a sterling opportunity to advance these rights. And I'm really excited that this can be part of the conversation, part of this workshop. Um, I'll leave it at that for now and we can sort of keep discussing in the dialogue. Wonderful, thank you so much, uh, Lucia. That was. Um... Uh, just so rich, um, documenting the, the the importance of um, yeah the importance of improved documentation around these experiences of LBT women, um, and um, making that important point about how um, rights are being denied right now uh, in Colombia in terms of uh, access to justice and reparations. Um, very important, I think, in raising the issue around the the unimplemented aspects of the 2016 peace agreement, uh, particularly now as we approach the, the fifth anniversary and. I mean, a great deal of you know, the world looked to Colombia in 2016 for its gender perspectives in, in its peace agreement. So um, important that we continue to look to see how, whether and how it's being implemented. Um, and of course, the, on, the uh, ongoing importance of, women, of participation um, and, and understanding women's participation um, in those inclusive terms, in terms of LBT inclusion as well. Um, and very nice, I think, to note the tremendous, to conclude by talking about opportunity and potential here, which is very much what's motivated our conversation. Um, 
just before I move to our next speaker, I do actually want to acknowledge that uh, Badana Rana is here, um, the CEDAW committee member who's been just very proactive around questions of CEDAW application to conflict and post-conflict settings. So um, just to acknowledge and welcome you, Badana. Um, okay, it's now my pleasure to move to our next speaker, uh, Niels Eric Hansen. And uh, Niels, if you're, Niels Eric, if you're happy, I will spotlight you and we look forward to, to hearing from you. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, this is a great opportunity to um, share some of the experiences that uh, we have made uh, with uh, work on specific cases, individual cases, um, on harassment and gender-specific violence. Um, and as a lawyer, uh, what we tend to do is to read the law and also conventions. And it's very clear that if you look into the torture convention, um, you have very specific provisions on um, the prohibition against torture. Uh, that member states are obliged to, to combat torture. Um, and even uh, if you read Article 3 of the Torture Convention, there is a specific prohibition against deportation to countries of origin uh, if persons would be in risk of torture. Um, so that's crystal clear from the convention itself. Uh, however, when you start to look into other conventions, it may be a, a, a little bit more blurred. Um, the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 3, uh, can give us some advice. Uh, and of course, the Refugee Convention, when we are talking about deportation. Um, but if you take the text of the CEDAW, the women's convention, um, it's really, really disappointing that uh, there are no provisions specifically on gender-specific violence and harassment. Um, we have addressed a number of issues of discrimination against uh, the, in the labor market and different areas. But um, it's difficult to, to see uh, how this convention can be used as a tool to protect uh, women and, and other groups um, from violence and deportation. So um, keeping in mind that uh, one of my professors long ago told me that um, it's a crime to, to do legal wishful thinking. Uh, we should always be uh, very strict and tell our client exactly what is possible and, and what is not. Um, from that point of view, uh, we should simply <laughs> get away with, with this convention because 
there's, there's no opportunity if you just read the words. However, since we have the possibility to bring individual communications to the various uh, committees, the Committee Against Torture, the Human Rights Committee, um, and also the Women's Committee, um, luckily people did do some kind of wishful legal thinking by bringing cases uh, on gender-specific violence. And the committee took on cases and developed um, case law, which clearly demonstrates that you will be in violation as a member state if you don't provide the necessary protection against gender-specific violence inside your country. Um, that is a fact with, with regard to Colombia and Denmark and other countries that if you accept to be a member of this convention, you also have an obligation to protect against violence. So this was the first step that uh, the committee bravely took on this. Uh, and I really don't understand why this is not specifically in the convention. It, it, it's so obvious. Um, and on a European level, we now have the Istanbul Convention uh, addressing this. Uh, but for the rest of the world, I don't see why women shouldn't be protected. Um, so bravely enough, we have this practice uh, from the committee. On top of that, uh, we then started to have a conversation around, again, um, maybe to do more legal visual thinking uh, in order to explore whether there would be possibilities to also include cases on deportation. And this is the, the principle of non-refoulement. And from this uh, principle, um, we can argue that uh, the state, the state like Denmark that has signed the convention um, has a duty not to deport people to areas where they will be in risk of persecution, including torture. And that is clear from the, the torture convention. Um, but, but torture is a specific concept. Um, torture is, by way of example, um, what is going on in prisons in Syria. Uh, when you are in uh, the hands of uh, the security uh, personnel. And that's why we, we need a broader understand of, uh, understanding of, of the violence that uh, women and other groups may uh, face. Um, and that is why we, we were starting to, to file these complaints with the Committee on the Rights of Women. And uh, most recently, uh, we also started to do the same 
uh, with the committee on the right of the child. Um, and actually it goes like women and uh, children um, has to some extent uh, uh, been, well, under the refugee convention, it has been like uh, a real refugee is a man, um, a political opponent, uh, someone who has been fighting against the regime. So over the years, it has been a struggle to uh, have women and children recognized as potential refugees. Um, and that is why it really makes sense to use the UN conventions um, as they have a specific uh, focus on, on these uh, issues. So um, we started to bring cases and uh, the Danish government responded to the first cases saying, but <laughs> there's, there's no language in the convention uh, implying that it should be possible to bring this kind of a case. Um, and also implying that um, the committee and the convention did not have extraterritorial effects, meaning that uh, Denmark could only be responsible for what happened to my client here in Denmark. Uh, they could not be responsible for what would eventually happen in the country of origin. Um, I think one, one thing was critical here. Um, we have the uh, periodic reviews, um, which is also an important tool that as NGOs or lawyers, we can write reports uh, and the government will have to respond during um, these uh, periodic reviews. Um, and with regard to Denmark, uh, we were fortunate that uh, Denmark had reported on uh, FGM, um, circumcision of uh, girls. Uh, and they, amongst other, reported that in Denmark, we have introduced a ban on FGM, even abroad. So it is possible to punish uh, those who carry out FGM, um, even though it's outside of Denmark, if you then return to Denmark, you can get punished because the law in Denmark has extraterritorial effects. So since Denmark already recognized this uh, and, and even <laughs> reported about this to CEDAW and were proud of it, um, we use that in the arguments uh, on our cases. And on the, this note, uh, we ended up with first a couple of decisions uh, that CEDAW uh, established that the convention do have extraterritorial effect. Um, and finally, uh, we got the first decision saying that Denmark was in violation of this principle of, of non-refoulement with regard to a woman who was to be deported to uh, Pakistan. Um, so now it has been established and there has also been made a general comment on this. So uh, we moved on uh, and we also had the, the first case ever uh, with the committee on the right of the child 
where the committee made their decision that uh, the children's convention was violated. Uh, and that was exactly uh, a case about FGM, a mother and a small child from Somalia was to be deported. And the committee made the decision that Denmark had violated the children's convention uh, if they were to deport the child. Um, we already have the, the second decision by the children's committee on the same issue. Uh, so Denmark has now been in violation uh, twice on this issue. Um, and this is just to uh, make also a comment on the problems with implementation of human rights. Uh, there's unfortunately a difference between the, having a right and by the end of the day, getting the right. Um, but as lawyers, uh, we can now enlighten our clients about this possibility. And most importantly, uh, in this kind of cases, uh, we can stop the deportation by filing these complaints. Uh, the UN committee can stop the deportation to, let's say, Colombia. Uh, with my client here in Denmark, uh, I have clients from Venezuela. Um, and in this, on this note, um, it is really important for my clients that we take on these cases and file uh, the petitions with the UN committees. And here, now that we, we have these experiences in front of us, um, we also start to realize that there's a lack of uh, protection uh, in the law and the conventions uh, on LGBT uh, issues. Um, and again, uh, that is strange. Uh, why is that? But since there is this uh, problem, um, and since we <laughs> realized that it is possible to do some wishful legal thinking, um, we would now take on such cases as well and, and try to use these uh, possibilities. Uh, hopefully, it will be possible to, to bring uh, LGBT cases uh, and hopefully uh, we can then again broaden the protection uh, and by the end of the day, assist our clients this way around. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you so much, Niels Eric. Um, it's, it's so uh, beneficial for us to hear from your practice perspective in terms of um, bringing these communications and, and legal actions at, at several different um, human rights fora, in, including CEDAW. Um, so with that, we'll move to our final panelist, um, who has been um, really a wonderful, generous contributor for the last uh, for the last two days. I feel like we're now old friends, Ksenia. Um, but uh, Ksenia Kirichenko is, is joining us from ILGA World. And uh, thank you so much. We'll look forward to hearing your contributions. Thank you. Um, I have a presentation and I want to share it, but um, the program told me that host disabled participant screen sharing. So maybe just host can allow me to. Uh -huh, okay, thank you. Uh, 
Yeah, I hope you can see it now, can you? Okay, so my presentation is uh, about um, specifically individual communications, two individual communications that um, have been considered by SIDO. Uh, and um, yeah, and uh, I specifically want to uh, talk about and to share with you some of my reflections with regard to hate speech and hate crimes experienced uh, not only because of gender of survivors, but also uh, sexual orientation. And, um, and yeah, I want to, um, to share specifically um, information about uh, two cases that uh, I was involved into. And here my position is quite interesting because, uh, well, there were two decisions by CEDO. Uh, one of them is on the case KK versus Russian Federation, and actually KK, it's me. And then the second, uh, it's ON and DP versus Russian Federation. I was involved uh, in coordination of this case on the national level when I was working with an um, LGBT group in St. Petersburg. So these two uh, decisions, they are quite interesting because both of them are about um, hateful violence. In first case, it's like verbal violence. In the second case is physical violence. Uh, in both cases, um, they were about uh, lesbophobic or homophobic uh, type of violence. Uh, and both of them are against Russian Federation, which is uh, you know, well known for a clear position against LGBTI human rights. But uh, the first case uh, ended up with an inadmissibility decision in 2019. And the second one um, allowed SIDO uh, for the first time actually to um, to recognize that uh, a state party, Russia, violated the rights of lesbian women specifically, and it was done in 2020. So I just want to, uh, to talk a bit more about each of these cases. And well, the pictures, um, KK versus Russian Federation, it's an MP who actually was the author of um, uh, some uh, derogatory words in relation to me. And here you can see him uh, kind of participating in anti-LGBTI demonstration with a picture of, uh, you know, pedophile criminals. And of course, he was trying to say that all LGBTI people are pedophiles and like, you know, all this rhetoric. And the second picture is actually this couple who uh, was um, attacked in St. Petersburg and whose case uh, event went to CEDO. Uh, so but before I start to uh, talk about specifically cases, I was, um, you know, I was thinking about this, um, how as feminist lawyers, we can challenge the uh, traditional concepts in uh, international human rights law specifically. And of course, a lot was, um, a lot uh, has been written about private and uh, public divide, for instance, and now we also have this, all these progressive, quite progressive um, concepts and uh, you know about gender-based violence, for example, it's not any it's not considered anymore as purely uh, private uh, matter. But when it comes to some other concepts, for example, deference or uh, fourth instance doctrine, uh, here I think that we can also ask more questions of a feminist nature and specifically because well, as a general rule, uh, um, 
international reviewing bodies, including CEDA or, for example, European Court of Human Rights, they do not go into fact-finding and uh, the application of the national law. Uh, for me, to some extent, it also mirrors this, uh, again, public-private divide. And for example, now we do not say that, uh, you know, whatever is happening to usually women in the private realm of home, if it's gender-based violence, someone can intervene. And it's not just their own uh, problem. Uh, but when it comes to international cases, for me, it's in a sense similar. So for example, what I experienced in Russia, uh, for CEDA, as a result, it was like, you know, a private realm of a particular state that should be dealt with uh, private, kind of private rules of a specific state, and CEDA would not intervene in this case. So for me, this is problematic uh, from this point. But then we can see that actually there are some exceptions uh, from this deference doctrine, and there are two of them that are usual for all international human rights tribunals and courts and uh, committees. First, it's if um, national decision making was clearly arbitrary. The second, uh, the second uh, reason is when um, the national decision making amounted to the denial of justice. But CEDA has also the third specific, very interesting uh, reason to actually to go into fact finding. And it's uh, when national decision making was biased or based or uh, gender based stereotypes, which I think that at least from a theoretical perspective could really um, could really change um, like everything that we know about uh, women's rights because CEDA can like open much more possibilities to review national fact finding using this uh, specific uh, exception uh, from the deference doctrine. But in practice, uh, what happened um, in two of uh, three lesbian cases brought to CEDA and two of them, uh, the committee actually decided that um, it would agree with what national courts did. And it was specifically about my case. So KK, KK versus Russian Federation, uh, it was a case uh, about uh, insults that I received from a local MP. Uh, we had an opening of a queer culture festival in St. Petersburg, and I was there as a lawyer because like, I wanted to, um, to ensure that we, for example, documenting violations if something will happen and so on and so forth. I was there, there, I was standing there, and we were also welcoming guests of the festival. And at some point, this local MP, well known for his homophobic position, arrived with uh, some right-wing activists, and they started just like to uh, harass, insult people. And specifically, he was using, uh, not for the first time, but he was using uh, words that we use in Russian language to insult, specifically lesbian women. And it was this uh, word, Kavirelka, in Russian. So he did this, and I decided that it's just like too much, and I'm going to go to the police. I went to the police. I asked them to uh, open an uh, administrative case uh, about discrimination and insults. Uh, they refused to do it, and they refused to do it because as a local MP, as a member of parliament, he uh, had immunity, and there was no procedure to, um, to do anything with this immunity. So that was the reason why administrative uh, procedure didn't work. Uh, the appeal was also unsuccessful, and then uh, I also decided in parallel to go to uh, civil proceedings, and I was asking the court to recognize the violation, discrimination, in insults also to prohibit the deputy from using this word in the future, and uh, for a monetary compensation for uh, moral damage. Uh, during these civil proceedings, we provided an expert linguistic opinion um, 
proving that these words, and specifically this word Poveralko, was abusive and derogatory. And uh, in turn, the EMP, who, by the way, never came to the court, it was only his uh, representatives, uh, they provided their own expert opinion, also kind of made by a linguist who was an expert in uh, business English language, not even Russian. Uh, and this expert said that the word Poveralko actually had several meanings. And uh, probably, most likely, uh, the MP just invented this word spontaneously. It was not derogatory. And uh, in any case, he was not aware of the derogatory meaning of this word. Based on this, the court refused our um, claims. Um, so we were refused, and all the appeals uh, remained unsuccessful. So that's kind of facts of the case. And then what happened then? Uh, decision of CEDA was basically that, well, CEDA mentioned again uh, this uh, deference uh, doctrine saying that uh, as a rule, they do not go into fact-finding. Uh, national courts in Russia, they reviewed uh, the case. Both parties were able to provide expert statements, and uh, it was found that the word uh, has several meanings. Therefore, CEDA decided that nothing indicated that uh, there were any reasons to uh, go into fact-finding or to say that there were anything wrong with um, you know, national decision-making and the communication was, was declared inadmissible. Uh, when I was trying to analyze and kind of reimagine the decision, I was thinking about maybe four main aspects, and one of them is just generally. I was thinking about if hate speech as a concept could be included into CEDO. And uh, well, um, what I did, I looked into all the uh, list of issues and concluding observations by CEDO, and I found out that actually CEDO did make, uh, did make uh, specific country recommendations uh, 45 times uh, since 2014. Um, on hate crimes, uh, hate speech, sorry, specifically. And uh, in most of the cases, these recommendations were framed under Article 5A, which is about gender stereotypes specifically, and even in some cases about gender-based violence. Uh, also, in many cases, when CEDA was speaking about hate speech, it was not just about women, but also women who are facing intersectional forms of discrimination, for example, like Roma women, LPTI women, and so on and so forth. Meaning that uh, the concept of hate speech uh, as it is being developed by CEDA is already intersectional. And then also from these uh, recommendations, country-specific recommendations, I was trying to kind of um, identify specific state obligations that could be um, attached to state parties with regard to hate speech. And specifically, it included uh, to prevent and publicly condemn hate speech against women, but also to criminalize hate speech and not to consider it uh, under uh, misdemeanor law specifically. So that's what was happening around country uh, periodic reviews and CEDA and hate speech. Then, uh, when it comes to KKS versus Russian Federation, I think that CEDA failed to consider several important aspects, and one of them is about equality and access to justice. Uh, first of all, because CEDA never said actually anything about the fact that I wasn't, able, uh, I wasn't able to open an administrative case. In administrative law, it would be a public law, meaning that it would not be me myself to, you know, collecting all the evidences and proving what happened there, but it would be uh, state uh, representatives. So administrative um, procedure were, was not available at all, specifically because he was a deputy. 
and it was not commented by CEDA at all. Then also, uh, because I wanted only to, I was able only to go into civil proceedings, all the burden of proof was on me. And we were trying to provide um, several types of documents and also evidence. And specifically, we came up with this linguistic, linguistic um, expertise kind of, also we provided uh, witnesses, we had a video recording, we even had uh, a statement from my uh, therapist who actually said that this incident had impacted my uh, mental health to some extent. Uh, MPs, uh, this MP only provided one statement uh, expert statement by uh, an expert in the field of business English uh, never came to the court and for me like it was definitely not about uh, exactly equality and access to justice. Uh, then the third thing is um, about contextual analysis because I think that well it's not only <laughs> generally when we speak about uh, hate speech and all the jurisprudence around hate speech including international jurisprudence uh, requires to analyze the context because words they can have different meanings indeed but we need to go into the context and here what we had we had an MP who was openly anti-LGBT and uh, I mentioned this specifically in my uh, application in my complaint to CEDAW and it was directly stated that this MP was author of anti-propaganda legislation he was not just a random person he went to an LGBTI event and he was using the words he he that the exact words that he used to use and that he used even after this event so it's not the only uh, just randomly invented word uh, but also what is interesting uh, in terms of contextual analysis of this case is that, um, well, situating subjects, he was an MP, he was a man, he was also uh, openly um, orthodox uh, Christian, uh, definitely had, he had much power than me and in this um, expert statement they even said that, uh, you know, the dialogue was between a man who, uh, sorry, the dialogue was between a man who, uh, as they said, was of a quite uh, high social status, well-known public figure, well-educated, of a middle age, and the woman, meaning me, uh, also educated by below the man's social status and looking clearly younger than him. So this, this is already about saying a lot, I think, about how they, um, you know, perceived this situation. Uh, and then uh, the fourth, um, and it's the last part which I would like to uh, mention here is um, it's about translation. So uh, I was thinking if the decision would be different if it was not the Russian language but English. And um, for me, English is the second language. And I was trying with uh, my partner who is an American and whose uh, first language is American English. We were trying to find a similar equivalent in English. Uh, something that would characterize specifically lesbian women. And what she suggested to me to use these uh, two words that you can see. And, uh, you know, in Cambridge uh, Dictionary, um, you can say that when you say these two words together, they can mean, in theory, uh, just a person who doesn't want to move because, like, it's, you know, expression related to wood or a wall built. And, that's basically what happened in the court because uh, the statement by their uh, expert was saying that uh, this word was invented by the NP and uh, it was probably because of my slowness in the situation when 
I was uh, being in a crowd and staying on the deputy's way and he tried to get around me. So it's quite, um, I think it's quite, um, for me, it was quite obvious that this is just something lost in translation, but then also uh, translation from Russian into Russian, because um, these words that he was using, they're not just derogatory for LGBTI, but they have very specific cultural connotations. And we also explain this in our um, communication to CEDA. And these words, they are about um, particular criminal or uh, criminal subculture that uh, was created uh, during Soviet times in some of the Soviet republics, including uh, Russia. And um, when he was using these words, uh, not in the context of prison, obviously, it was also about showing to us that we are not, um, you know, we are not equal members of the society. We are like criminals and also criminalization for LGBTI people is a very specific thing because of the history of criminalization, right? Um, and um, yeah, and um, all this was um, not taken into account by national courts, but also by CEDO. And uh, the last part here, which was important for me is that the first instance uh, judge, she was a woman, and during the hearing, she told us that as a woman, she doesn't know this word and it would not be derogatory for her if she would hear this. But also for me, it's um, about uh, who hears these words and who could be wounded by words. Because for an ordinary woman, probably this word doesn't have all these um, connotations. And of course, as, as an ordinary woman, she could even, uh, you know, she has a privilege um, not to know about this word. We know these words because we systemically are uh, oppressed, discriminated against and because we were uh, called with these words uh, sometimes, like, you know, during, sometimes since very young ages. And uh, the deputy, he also was aware about this word, but specifically because he was uh, living and uh, building his career in a very specific situation when he was openly anti-LGBTI. So we both were in this discourse. And for uh, ordinary, let's say, people, or for maybe even this judge, it was not obvious that it's not just a random word, but it's actually just one part of the system. When we know that this is all interconnected, we know that this was the MP who introduced the, by the way, criticized by CEDO, uh, anti-propaganda legislation. We know that this person was uh, constantly attempting to, um, you know, to, for example, to justify homophobic crimes and so on and so forth. But for a judge, probably it was just an uh, isolated uh, incident. Uh, and from all this, so my conclusions uh, with regard to KK versus Russian Federation, I think that CEDO actually had all the opportunities to uh, at least consider uh, this um, this communication admissible and maybe even to find a violation and they could actually go into uh, could have um, done um, this exercise by saying that the decision by national authorities was clearly arbitrary because con context the context was completely uh, taken out of the consideration because it was amounted to denial of justice because no administrative proceeding was available um because of the immunity of the deputy and also because it was based uh, on harmful gender stereotypes among uh, which are first that uh, it's just a private matter and specifically verbal violence is a private matter um, therefore we don't have 
criminal or administrative proceeding, which is go into civil court. And then second is that there is no systemic discrimination against lesbian women in Russia, because that basically the meaning of this uh, decision when we say that it's just like an uh, isolated incident of just one word, which has different meanings. Uh, the third stereotype is was also about like respectable men uh, who would not use such awards. And actually that was one of the arguments in their uh, in the MPs um, expert statement, they were saying that he as a respectable man as this like high social class man, he would never know this uh, criminal um, meaning specific meaning jargon of these words. And uh, finally, it's like who is a trustworthy uh, subject and do we want actually to believe a woman? And probably in this case, no. And I think that it was clear that this decision and what the national authorities in Russia, what they did was based on gender stereotypes. And therefore, I think, uh, and I claim that Sida uh, would have uh, made a different decision, but well, um, that's what we had there. And then I also have some slides about the other decision, but um, I don't think if I have time. No. No, okay. But maybe I just can say that there was also another decision about hate crimes, where actually CEDA for the first time recognized that there was a violation uh, specifically uh, in relation to the lack of effective investigation into uh, an incident of physical violence against a lesbian couple, and specifically because the uh, hatred, uh, lesbophobic motive of uh, the violence was not taken into account. So that's, that's kind of... Um, positive decision, an example of positive decision that uh, could also influence the future um, jurisprudence and development of the jurisprudence of CEDA. That's, that's all from my side. Wonderful, thank you so much, Ksenia. I have to say, I really hope my students were tuning in for that because it was a masterclass in terms of a um, gender analysis and critique of human rights fact-finding, um, really, and a, and a really valuable contribution. And I think, again, one of those contributions that it probably made us all reflect a little bit on how tough it must be to be a CEDAW committee member. It's, uh, it's a, not, a, not an easy task. Um, so with that, we, that's the end of our uh, formal contributions. Um, at this point, I really want to open up to the audience. Uh, it would be wonderful to have some contributions from um, the other workshop participants. Um, I know I have, um, whilst you're gathering your thoughts, I'm just going to encourage you to raise your hand and ask a question. Um, we've won, great, we've won from Megan, and uh, I also have one in the chat that I'm going to share. So maybe I'll, I'll um, let me see, Megan, are you, yours is your question for Neil Derek? Yes, yes, it, it is. is. Great. Okay, so let's, uh, I have a question for Lucia from the, um, from the chat function. So maybe we'll just, I'll, I'll ask this and then we'll go to you, Megan, and then we'll go back to the panelists. Uh, so, uh, Lucia, there's quite a specific question here just about the HEP, um, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace. Um, this is from, from my PhD student, Anna Martin. Uh, so recently, the Colombian, uh, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace declared its jurisdiction over gender-based persecution, including violations against LGBT persons. Uh, this is groundbreaking in international law. Uh, the HEP also noted that it would adopt an intersectional approach to examine these violations. Uh, could you give us your views? In particular, how do you think the work of the HEP could impact the recognition of SOGI rights in Colombia? 
Um, and I'm just going to add, if you want to say anything you think maybe the CDOR committee might usefully do around that, that would be helpful too. So um, we'll come to you in just a moment. Uh, I'm now going to um, invite Megan to ask her question. Yeah, I have actually a question for Ksenia and for uh, Niles Eric. So Niles Eric, I really loved your presentation thinking about uh, non-refoulement in CEDA because it's not in the text and, and how we kind of push that the text forward and thinking about non-refoulement and gender-based violence. I'm wondering if what you think about how, how the committee or, or even just how the concept of gender-based violence needs to be adapted to think about the specific forms of gender-based violence in um, that lesbian, bisexual, uh, trans, queer, non-gender-conforming women experience. Um, how do we understand their their fear of returning to, as uh, Mel and the other panel, that a hostile environment? And, and does that reach a level of violence serious enough um, to, to prevent a state from deporting um, someone back to a different country? And for Ksenia, I really liked your presentation about how we need to understand hate speech within its context. And this is probably more of an observation uh, than a question, like a true academic. But we can see in the UK, particularly with, as Alexa was mentioned earlier, kind of the weaponization of gender equality to exclude trans women, and e even how language that might seem in, seem benign, like this space is for real women, or or it will actually be a kind of a way to exclude others. And so I just thought, what are your thoughts on how, is that hate speech? Is that just discriminatory speech? Does that distinction matter? And does it matter in the context of CEDAW? So those are my questions. Okay. And thank you all three, great presentations, really enjoyed them. So wonderful. I think with that, I'll go back to you just in the order of, the, um, of your presentation. So I'll start with uh, Lucia, if you'd like to. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so I'd start by saying, so CDAO itself, like NGR 30 actually recognized that, you know, up the transitional justice or, you know, that peace agreements offer this opportunity for real change, right, to advance women's rights. And that's, you know, like you said, sorry, I, I didn't see the, the question, Anna, like you said, Anna, right, this is sort of a historic opportunity to advance LGBT rights in Colombia. You know, we've, we were actually arguing before the, the special jurisdiction that um, gender, that uh, the crimes committed against LGBT people amount to gender-based persecution and that it should be recognized as a crime against humanity. Um, uh, this uh, outright, for example, has also argued something similar uh, before the ICC in the case of Iraq, um, where there, you know, there's also persecution by Daesh um, against uh, LGBT people. Um, as well as against women. Um, if this is wrecking, right, it, the, and because we are at a tribunal that is specifically charged with looking at these crimes right now, uh, this is truly an unparalleled opportunity. Um, and, and it's an opportunity to also sort of overcome the historic debt with LGBT victims who, like I said earlier, just have not found justice in the ordinary justice system, did not find justice in the peace and justice um, trials, which was a the transitional justice scheme before um, the, the current one, right, with the 2016 peace agreement. Um, that being said, um, the HIP is not currently uh, taking advantage of this opportunity as it should be. It is not living up to the historical moment. And there are many reasons for this, but I'll just like give three really quickly and, and which are, you know, very relevant for, for CDOW. One is that the current structure of the HIP doesn't allow them to actually uh, see the full extent, the gravity, the systematicity of gender-based violence, of, of sexual violence, of, of persecution of LGBT people in the conflict. Because the way the cases are structured um, is that they're either focused on one specific violation. For example, K001 is on uh, kidnappings by FARC. 
Um, and then, or they're focused on specific regions. For example, K002 is on three municipalities in a department in the Pacific uh, Southwest of the country, right? Conflict affected regions. None of those cases are currently focused solely on, uh, on gender-based crimes. Um, and while in theory, it would be great if they could mainstream that right across all the cases, that just is not happening. Um, in fact, what ends up happening is that the cases ended up being sort of uh, parceled out into the different cases and they ended up being, they end up being studied either in relation to other violations or in relation to specific territories. Um, and because of a lack of funding, a lack of expertise, a lack of prioritization, it just isn't working, right? So we need a specific case on this to actually um, get to how, to actually understand what role this violence played in the conflict and get justice for victims and survivors. Um, it's also pursuing very narrow and patriarchal legal cons uh, interpretations of legal concepts, for example, like conflict-related sexual violence, um, which is, for example, sort of a key point for, for CDAO too, um, you know, of, of it's, it's just to think about sexual violence more broadly. Um, and this even goes against sort of like established legal standards in Colombia and internationally. Um, and it's definitely an issue sort of like Ksenia was pointing out earlier of the private public divide, right? Um, they're still sort of reproducing the stereotype that many of these cases of sexual violence occur in the private sphere. Um, and so they are opportunistic cases of violence and they're not connected to the armed conflict. And so don't end up looking at them. Um, similar things have happened with concepts like systematic uh, violations, right, which is crucial to understanding to judging uh, crimes against humanity. Um, it's always based or it's been based in recent decisions on sort of a quantitative criteria. And what we've been trying to say to them is if you don't look at this from a gender lens, um, you're not going to you're not going to be able to judge these crimes or, or to investigate them seriously because you're not going to get the same number of violations against LGBT people as you are of forced displacements in the country, right? There may not be thousands of these cases that like reach the jurisdiction, but that makes sense because each of these individual violations has a ripple effect, right? That sort of impacts all other LGBT people, all other people that can identify with the survivor. And that causes them to leave that town, causes them to hide their sexual orientations, um, to hide their true gender identities. And so you can't really think about it in the same way. They're not doing that. And they also don't have gender sensitive lines of questioning. Um, and, you know, they'll ask sort of like convoluted or inaccessible questions and they'll ask one question, which is they'll ask, for example, like a former combatant, did you guys discriminate LGBT people? And like the guy will just sit there um, and say, no, of course not. And then they'll move on. Right. And so whereas with other violations, they'll sort of like dig a little bit deeper um, and sort of push past a little bit of that initial um, sort of denial of the violence here, they just end up sitting with that denial. Um, and so, you know, these are things that, you know, CDAO has addressed for even in, in, in the general recommendation 30, right? There needs to be gender sensitive practices for investigating these crimes. And if there isn't, we just end up having more impunity. Um, and it would be great, for example, if there could be sort of like uh, more monitoring, right? In, in the next cycle, um, you know, when for Colombia's um, next periodic report about what the HEP is doing. Um, and how it's actually investigating these crimes, whether it's living up to national, international legal standards, whether it's actually uh, applying its gender sensitive mandate. Um, so yeah, so I think that's that's vital. Fantastic, thank you so much, Lucia. Uh, Neil Zarek, I'm gonna move to you. You had a very specific question there from, from Megan Campbell. Um, yeah, um, I would like to, Try to 
share the screen. This would be my homepage for all the cases um, against Denmark that um, we have filed over the years. And <clears throat> if you go into, let's say, the cases on the torture committee, um, you will find a number of cases which uh, have been filed uh, with regard to people who have been subjected to torture before leaving their countries of origin or after uh, they have left, they have reasons to fear uh, coming back. Um, and what, what is the problem here would be that, that most cases would relate to torture coming from states uh themselves like iran uh syria and so forth now if we move on to gender um that would be cases that we have filed on behalf of again victims who have been already subjected to gender specific violence in the country of origin or now they fear returning to a country. But here we have uh, cases uh, regarding this kind of abuse that happens in the private sphere, mainly. Um, these are sometimes related to authorities, but um, the case I mentioned before uh, as the first case where there was an, a violation with regard to the principle of uh, non-refoulement. Um, this was my client from Pakistan. She had uh, violated uh, social norms and uh, then uh, she was burned all over her, con uh, her, her body. Um, but, but, but this happened in the, in the private sphere. Um, so when she applied for asylum in Denmark, uh, the Danish Refugee Board turned her case down saying, but, but she was not persecuted by the authorities of Pakistan. Uh, this, this was a private matter. Um, and then we filed the, the case with CEDAW and uh, by the end of the day, the CEDAW found a violation of the Women's Convention. And, and, and that is exactly what we need, that um, the kind of issues uh, I already mentioned, uh, FGM, uh, circumcision. Um, and here we can move on, as I mentioned, the, the Children's Convention. Um, which also includes uh, women and their baby girls. Um, so that we are broadening the, the scope of protection with regard to the kind of uh, violations 
that that would be covered by the women's convention and the the children's convention compared to what is covered by the torture convention um, and that that is also why we should try to use these uh, opportunities uh, to to uh, broaden the, the concept with regard to um, yeah, hate speech, hate crimes that was just mentioned from, from Russia. Um, and I, I, I fully agree that uh, th th this kind of um, uh, violations is not only about the specific victim, it's something that will influence LGBT people as such. When they see a violent attack, if they see hate speech, hate crimes uh, against one member of that community, it will affect everybody. And, and that's why it, it needs to be a specific crime uh, by the legislation of the country. And if there is no such legislation, uh, then we should try to bring these cases to the international level. Thank you. Uh, so uh, maybe before I just go into the hate speech, I just wanted to quickly mention that there was an interesting case, um, AB versus Finland by the Committee on the Rights of the Child about non-refoulement and specifically a lesbian couple with a child from Russia. And it was a positive decision at the end. So I think that maybe Sida can actually also, uh, you know, adopt uh, some approaches uh, by other committees in this field. Because for us, uh, for us, when we went to Sida, uh, for us, it was important because we can, we can, in Russia, we can choose between the European Court of Human Rights and Sida. And for us, it was important to go specifically into to Sida to because, you know, you, you see Sida as specifically like women's uh, rights mechanisms, uh, mostly consisted of women, mostly consisted of feminists. And therefore, for us, it was important not just to um, receive some analysis, legal analysis of the case, but also to receive this intersectional feminist analysis. Um, and, uh, and also, I mentioned this deference doctrine and so on and so forth. And I think that it can also be developed with refugee cases, because, for example, there was a case AS versus Denmark, uh, actually led by Niels, about a lesbian refugee who was uh, refused um, asylum seeker who was refused um, refugee status in Denmark. And I think that also CIDA decided that national authorities made everything perfectly and there was no stereotypes, but I think that uh, with um, a deeper analysis, maybe uh, some stereotypes could be uh, revealed, including, for example, um, compulsory uh, heterosexuality, meaning that when a woman has to prove that she is a lesbian, we don't have to prove that we are heterosexual, right? And what we have to prove that we are not heterosexual. There is something about already some presumptions that could be challenged. And I think that if uh, like um, attorneys or activists, if they want to uh, have more uh, positive decisions, maybe it would be great uh, also to uh, think about stereotypes and naming stereotypes in the national decision-making. So also to help CEDA to develop jurisprudence. So now when it comes to hate speech, discriminatory speech, and uh, let's say anti-trans rhetoric or uh, real women rhetoric, uh, it's a very good question. I don't have a direct um, simple answer on this, but 
I was thinking about it maybe from more from my activist perspective, because, for example, we had a, a public consultation with Victor Madrigal, who is the independent expert on SOGIA recently. And it was a public consultation. Uh, there were several uh, activists, including trans activists, participating there. And uh, one um, anti-trans, but kind of lesbian group also arrived and they started just to post on chats things related like these so-called trans people and you know all this you know this rhetoric obviously and uh i was um i was trying to um to say something about um hate speech particularly because uh i think that especially it's all contextual but when we have when we have a space that's expected to be a safe space, at least for LGBTI people and for trans people specifically, when they come there expecting to be safe, and what they actually see is all this anti-trans rhetoric, I think that this could be considered as at least discriminatory speech, but also maybe hate speech. Uh, then I do think that we should have some discussions about this because I can see some rational, of course, um, when, for example, cis women say that they do not feel safe in certain spaces. And of course, that's because of the previous experience of gender-based violence. And of course, this should be probably uh, somehow discussed. But I think that it's also, uh, again, from, from a more activist perspective, these discussions should be also framed as a discussion that will be involving these topics so that like trans people who already have experience of being excluded and discriminated against and so on and so forth not recognized so that they know what they can face there so for me it's some of the ideas that i was trying to come up with more as an activist rather than um, legal researcher i think Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kasaya. That was such a, a thoughtful contribution. Um, we are just arriving at the, the end of the session. We have sort of three more minutes on my clock. I do just want to really encourage anyone, um, particularly anyone who hasn't spoken yet, if they would just like to come in on any of the themes. Sandra has her hand up. Yeah, please go ahead, Sandra. Hi, um, just really quick to uh, kind of... To... <laughs> I would just like to say that um, I feel that anti-trans rhetoric is hate speech um, and that seeing it in um, LGBTQI positive spaces is really disappointing. Um, and just to, to say, uh, as yeah, I'm not even sure where I was going um, with that, with, with the point, but just to, to, to say that, um, you know, it, it to anything that denies the womanhood of trans women, anything that denies the gender identity and the validity of the gender identity of trans people um, is a direct attack on their humanity, on their citizenship, um, on their social citizenship. And it is just, it, it's unacceptable um, to see. So just to, to kind of to, to point that out. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is that we just, uh, and it, this kind of came back a little bit to um, something that was brought earlier up earlier about reproductive justice, is that 
a lot of the time when we talk about um, you know women's women's rights and women's issues and that there's an awful lot of cis normativity involved. So what I mean by that is the assumption that you know women that we talk about our cis women or that we're only talking about cis women's issues. Um, so you know Alexa mentioned earlier in her answer to one of the questions you know she's talking about. Um, bringing trans men and non-binary people into to reproductive justice uh, discussions, um, but also focusing on trans healthcare as, um, as you know, as an issue um, that, that comes up in this. So I completely uh, agree that we need to, uh, and I think this was raised yesterday as well, but I completely agree that we need to have discussions on, you know, women's issues and issues that are perhaps experienced by those who are affected by misogyny and those who are affected by misogyny based exclusion and oppression and that but at the same time that we need to discard a certain amount of cis normativity from our from our point of view and that we need to to make sure that we are being trans inclusive whether that be inclusive of people who fall within traditionally um i suppose women related issues or people uh who are trans women or trans feminine um and who also need to be included when we discuss these things so yeah just short input on that thank you so much sandra um, a powerful and important note um on which to to conclude our session um just before I formally conclude, I do want to give our panelists an opportunity, just if there's any final comments or thoughts before we move on. All right. Okay, so with that, I'll, I'll conclude that session. And thank you so much to our to our panelists. Um, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and great honor now to move on to our um, very final uh, portion of our discussions today, which is um, a contribution from Marion Bethel, a CEDAW's current uh, CEDAW committee member uh, from Trinidad to, um, to offer her thoughts on uh, CEDAW's mandate and role and responsibilities and, and some potentialities as well um, in this area of CEDAW and SOGI. So Marian, I'm going to um, invite you to, uh, to, to take, the, take the form. All right, thank you. Thank you very much, Catherine. And um, I'm from the Bahamas, <laughs> the Caribbean region. Yes, the Bahamas, thank you. And um, I'm really pleased to be here, to be present with all of us, all of you, and to contribute to this workshop on SOGI and CEDAW. I'm expressing my own views and I do not speak on behalf of the CEDAW committee. The entire workshop for me has been exceptionally productive, rich, informative, and entirely engaging. And I thank each and every presenter for what they've offered. <clears throat> You've all deepened my understanding of the significant ways in which women's enjoyment of substantive rights guaranteed under CEDAW are shaped by their sexual orientation and gender identity. I have paid particular attention to the recommendations you have made as to how the committee could better carry out its mandate in regard to the protection and, and advancement of the rights of LBTI persons. More specifically, more, more specificity is required in our recommendations for one. I agree with you. And in my view, this workshop presents exactly the kind of constructive engagement from which the committee can benefit enormously. I recognize that my statements will not do justice to the profound and thoughtful presentations, passionate views, uh, feelings and experiences that, experiences that have been communicated 
I thank the organizers for conceptualizing and delivering on the ob objective of the workshop, namely to make a theoretical and practical contribution to the interpretation of CEDAW and the activities of the CEDAW committee, states parties, civil society, and international organizations. So what is the guarantee of UN CEDAW for the respect, protection, and fulfillment of the human rights of women in regard to equality and non-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity? What in effect is the promise of intersectionality as an approach to protection of sexual orientation and gender identity of women, for women under CEDAW? In practice, the committee is ever mindful of our mandate to deliver at the level of substantive equality, and therefore we pay attention to equality of opportunity, equality of access, equality of benefits, and equality of results and outcomes. Our focus on discrimination establishes that inequality is socially constructed. We recognize that CEDAW is the international human rights instrument that provides a framework to counter the limitations of formal equality, to counter inconsistencies in the application of the law, as well as to counter the social, cultural, political, and religious underpinnings that prevent women from exercising their right to equality and non-discrimination. The convention establishes, establishes the equal valuing of all women and groups as required by formal equality and emphasizes that all women are entitled to the benefits of equality and non-discrimination. The concept of the concept of intersectionality takes us beyond the one-dimensional identity of woman, perhaps as white and middle class, as referenced by one of the panelists yesterday. Intersectionality demands that we embrace the lived realities and experiences of each and every woman, of individual complainants, of groups of women, of all women in the spirit of inclusion and in the fact of inclusion. In practice, the the committee recognizes the intersecting oppressions women face and the barriers to women's full enjoyment of their rights based on ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, migrant status, rurality, disability, and much more. In my view, sexual orientation and gender identity must be categorically and meaningfully included at all times. In 1989, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw's imaginative and concrete metaphor of a traffic intersection illuminated the persistent and interlocking jam of discrimination in regard to African-American women based on sex, gender, and race. Since this time, intersectionality has come to express an ever-evolving traffic of human identities, human experience, human expression, and humankind as so ably illustrated by the special rapporteur and Sogi Victor madrigal Bortos and all of the presenters in this workshop. Further, the lack of consensus on this issue of sexual orientation and gender identity within the, within the committee is open for further discussion by the CEDAW committee. At this time, we have agreed to use the words lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and intersex or LBTI to describe women who express their sexual orientation, gender identity, and sexual characteristics differently from prescribed hetero norms. I'm aware that the terms lesbian, bisexual, and transgender are used mostly in the global north. For example, Audre Lorde, from the, uh, an African-American Caribbean, retrieved the word ZAMI 
from her ancestral home of Cariacu in the Caribbean to denote women loving women. Yesterday, we also mentioned the Hedras of Pakistan and India. It is clear then that various cultures have their own language to name forms of human expression and identity. And it is also clear that alternative language is being developed to be more inclusive and sensitive and to replace the binaries of female and male and woman and man. And it is incumbent upon the CEDAW committee to enter into this ever evolving concept of, of language evolving and identities evolving. That said, it is my view that sexual orientation, gender identity and gender expression are grounds for human rights abuses against women under CEDAW. As we are all aware, there is no provision directly on violence against women in CEDAW. Yet, the international normative framework on gender-based violence against women has evolved since the establishment of the CEDAW committee in 1982 and its adoption of general recommendation number 19 in 1992. The same evolution can and must take place in regard to sexual orientation and gender identity as a ground for non-discrimination under CEDAW. <clears throat> One of the questions asked yesterday concerned the significance of the role of, of civil society in our committee's work. Yes, we depend heavily on the reports of the NGOs. It is from them that we learn firsthand of the discrimination and violence experienced by LD, LBT persons who are less likely to report it or seek address, in addition to, to our own understandings and our own country-specific situations. In countries where homosexuality is criminalized, even if the law does not explicitly include lesbianism, the fear of state penalties, family rejection, or community recrimination silences LBT persons. As a result, discrimination against women on the basis of their actual or perceived sexual orientation and or gender identity is often underreported, if reported at all. And so as, a, as CEDAW committee members, we must demand that governments report on sexual orientation and gender identity issues for women under CEDAW. Government reports often make no reference at all to LBT persons. And so we depend on the, the um, civil society organizations to bring these matters to our attention. One of the concerns that the, that the CEDAW committee is grappling with is that the explicit inclusion of sexual orientation, gender identity, and sex, sexuality rights might lead to a withdrawal from CEDAW or decrease reservations. Some states also, also perceive references to sexual orientation and gender identity as an introduction of new rights. The committee has argued effectively that it seeks to uphold new ways of addressing existing long-term violations and new interpretations of the convention's mandate and new clarifications of violence and discrimination. This is evidenced by the adoption of the GR35 on gender-based violence against women and the inquiries into access um, to safe abortion in Northern Ireland and female genital mutilation in Mali. With the controversial right to abortion, CEDAW found a way to navigate this as reproductive rights and health rights. And with female genital cutting, CEDAW advanced that traditional practices resulting in harm, suffering, and violence are human rights violations. In the same vein, CEDAW must find a way to uphold the rights of women in regard to their sexual orientation, gender identity, sexual autonomy, and gender expression. In summary and conclusion, I would offer the following thoughts, which are not exhaustive on this issue. 
It is critical for the CDOG committee to honor and uphold the spirit of inclusion and protection for all women so that the CDOG convention as a living document progresses and not regresses. That the committee extends more protections and not less or fewer protections. In my view, the integrity and credibility of the committee is open to question when some vulnerable groups, some vulnerable groups are protected and others are not. Recognizing sexual orientation and gender identity and expression would significantly advance the promise and the implementation of CEDAW. The committee needs to challenge homophobia, transphobia in the fight for women's equality and address sexual orientation and gender identity as grounds for human rights protection so that LBT persons are included specifically and consistently under CEDAW. The committee in my view, must undertake to send an unambiguous message to states parties that denying women their rights based on sexual orientation and gender identity violates the convention and prevents LBT persons from enjoying their full rights as human beings and citizens in their countries. And finally, I thank the organizers again, whose intellectual and activist paths have made this workshop possible. The Women Human Rights Defenders on behalf of LBT persons. And I will take all of this with me as I move forward in my work on the CEDAW committee. I have gained from this time with you and I will use it to make a difference. And I thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Patel. We, we couldn't have hoped for a, um, a stronger, a warmer, more positive um, and appreciative note. So thank you so much. And thank you for at attending all four sessions for and participating so actively. Um, we are so very grateful to you. Um, uh, so it comes, it falls to me to, to, um, to really to round, to round out things, just to say good, uh, thank you so much to, um, I do want to take a moment to actually just thank and acknowledge all of our um, panelists, if, if you'll bear with me. So we uh, we commenced with a, a keynote address from um, Dr. Leon Adaria from the CEDAW committee. Uh, we also had a contribution from the UN independent expert, um, Victor Madrigal-Borlos. Uh, we heard from um, Danielle Roberts uh, from Here and I, here in, in Belfast, where I am, and Amana Kimiri from the National Gay and, Gez National Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission of Kenya. Uh, we heard from Alexa Moore earlier today from Transgender Northern Ireland, uh, from Marissa Hutchinson from International Women's Rights Action Watch Asia Pacific, uh, from Mel Duffy in Dublin, uh, from Lucia Baca in Colombia, Diversa, uh, Neil Derek Hansen, immigration lawyer, and Ksenia Kirichenko from Ilga World. Um, and finally, then, uh, a wonderful conclusion with Marion Bethel. Um, sincere thanks to all of you for your enthusiasm, for your energy, your contributions. Um, I really, I really feel that we've um, been just hugely productive in this discussion. I have a lot of excitement about what's going to come out of it um, and look forward to that. Um, in addition to the formal panelists, we've had rich contributions um, from several participants. So thank you so much for engaging so productively, so genuinely. Um, it's difficult to capture a workshop dynamic when you're in this virtual format, but actually I think it's, it's, we've succeeded because people have been um, so generous and thoughtful in their contributions. Uh, I do want to note my, my personal thanks to my co-organizers, uh, Megan Campbell and Loveday Hudson. Um, I will say that this came out of a very speculative email saying, should we do something on CEDO and SOGI? And, and I got responses from both of them in about 20 minutes. Um, 
to say yes. And uh, it's only with their uh, enthusiasm and, and also their expertise uh, that we've been, been able to pull this off. Um, and also I do really want to acknowledge IRA um, who were just hugely helpful in accessing the committee um, and in facilitating those connections with the committee. So particular thanks to, to IRA. Um, uh, and very finally, I think people will forgive me if I do just reiterate my thanks to the CEDAW committee members who have participated, who have spoken, those who have listened um, and engaged. Um, we, we have been really overwhelmed by the, the level of the response from the committee. It's, it's been well beyond our, our expectations. Um, we are so grateful for that and we hope that this will be the sign of, of more productive um, change going forward. Um, and my very final words are, uh, of course, about logistics. Um, we have recorded everything. Uh, the recordings will be available very shortly. We'll, we will communicate those to you, um, audio and, and video. Um, and we are working on a, a workshop report, which we also hope to produce quite quickly um, and will convey to you. Um, so we'll wrap by that. So everybody stay safe, stay healthy, take care. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. All right, take care.